When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Ann Taylor Fleming, and I'm the Associate Director of the Sun Valley Writers Conference. And in this episode of Beyond the Page, I have the pleasure, make that the intellectual joy, of speaking with the author, historian, and Harvard Law professor, Annette Gordon-Reed, who has carved out a unique space in the conversation of the country. She came to major public attention and acclaim in 2008 with the publication of The Hemmings of Monticello, An American Family, which brought to light and life the entangled family of Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings. The book, which won both the 2008 National Book Award and the 2009 Pulitzer Prize, introduced us to Gordon Reed's unique gifts for research and storytelling and for putting a human face on figures in history. Her most recent book, On Juneteenth, named one of the best books of 2021 by The New York Times, NPR, The Washington Post, and others, is another wholly original work, a memoir of her Texas childhood braided with an exploration of the country's long, hard, unfinished road to racial equality. There's a back jacket quote from the historian David W. Blight, which I love. If this country has a modern Shakespeare looking for material, Gordon Reed has provided it. Let me now say welcome Annette Gordon-Reed to our podcast. Glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, we've been trying to get together since we were last together at Sun Valley. And as I recalled, I remember you attempting to fly fish and my (laughs) um, admiring your bravery, which showed me that you are not only intellectually brave, but maybe physically brave as well. (laughs) And I have no idea how that went. I don't I don't recall catching any fish, but it was a lot of fun. (laughs) I love the process. Yeah, it's fun to learn. And one of the things I am so struck by, I have listened to the talk you gave in 2009 at, at the conference, at the Sun Valley Writers Conference. And I'm so struck by what you made me think about. You made me think about not Jefferson and Sally Hemings. You made me think of the, if I will, the moral responsibility of the historian, You made us see faces, take the measure of people, and as you pointed out, slavery and slaves were often just seen as a mass, not differentiated, and that that was the impetus, in effect, for you writing the book. And we have a wonderful soundbite, if I may, that I'd love you to listen to with me that sort of distills this approach. 
Well, so I sat down to write this story thinking and saying that I wanted to bring this enslaved family alive as individuals, not as a group of people, but to show the varied conditions of slavery and their lives. And one thing that I, one of my goals was to make them matter to people. I think it's really easy to dismiss people or to, you know, to sort of, yeah, dismiss people, say they're unimportant if you don't know them if you don't know anything about them as individuals, if you don't have a connection to them. It's like if in my neighborhood in Manhattan, you know, I pass millions of people a day. Uh, but if, you, if I meet someone in the neighborhood, then I see them all the time. When I notice them, when I, when I put a face to a name, then they become visible to me. Uh, and I know where they live and they have some connection to me. And I thought that one of the problems with what had been happening before with the Hemings is, is that they were being seen as this monolithic group of slaves and no one knew them as individuals. So that's what I wanted to do with this book. You know, I just love that quote and it has made me look harder at people on the street um, <laughs> as I wander about. Did you know when you started to write history that this would be your orientation? that you were going to try to, as it were, unmask people and individuate them again? Or is that something that came to you in the process? I think it was something that came to me in the process. After I did my first book, which was about the controversy over whether Jefferson and Hemings had kids together, mm -hmm. it came to me that it would be possible because of his record keeping to actually talk about enslaved people in ways that they aren't typically discussed. Because we know a good deal about members of the Hemings family. We don't have enough for a full-fledged biography of any one of them. But if I put mm -hmm. them together, I could tell their individual stories with the material that was there. So I think this was something that more unfolded mm -hmm. as I became more interested in them. As I learned more about them, I thought, wow, you know, what would it be like to go to France and to learn how to become a chef and to be in this different environment? Mm -hmm. And so I began to see James Hemings in a different light, in a way that I'd seen him before when I really began to think about it. So this was an unfolding process for me, I think. Mm -hmm. And the evolution of your feelings about Jefferson from book one to book two, and then in fact to now, what has happened to your own um, take on Jefferson along this long process? Well, I think the other thing that's happened in this process is that I've gotten older. <laughs> and as I've gotten inescapably. older, inescapably, <laughs> fortunately older, and yes. I've begun to think much more about how hard it is to do anything in the world, to accomplish things. And I think there's a tendency to sort of have expectations that are outsized for a person who was an outsized individual, you know, obviously. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I would say that I'm more patient than I would have been, say, 10 years ago <laughs> with it. And that's a result mm -hmm. of, I think, perhaps wanting people to be patient with me, with things that I intend to do that don't work out or things that I don't work on that I should be working on. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's about the changes in my own personality and my own understanding about the scope of life and mm -hmm. what a short time we have to do things. And I am impressed with the things that he did. I'm disappointed in the things that he didn't do. But it's a lot to ask, you know, for someone to do all of the things that I think he should have done. Mm -hmm. I mean, it would have been better if he had freed the people whom he enslaved. There's no question about that. As for moving the needle on slavery as an institution, 
I think that would have been a really tough thing. And I think he looked at the situation and realized he could not do anything. He would not be able to persuade his fellow Virginians to free enslaved people without a fight. Mm -hmm. And so I think he turned his attention to the things that he could do. And that was politics, being president of the United States of America, fostering what he thought was the welfare of a country that he was he was sort of the original American exceptionalist that had a special mission in the world. And that's what he focused on. I, I wish he'd done other things, but this is a long way of saying is that I think I've become a bit more tolerant than I was in the beginning. It's so interesting. Do you find that the culture has grown potentially less tolerant? Oh, absolutely. We've gone in different directions on this. <laughs> I think <laughs> You're going one you know, way in the country. The country's going, going the a other. different way on, on this question. But I really do think it's the personal aspect of it, thinking of getting older myself and then working on this subject that I've been working on for a number of years, mm-hmm. uh, there's this sense of, I just have a different view of it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not a question of forgiving someone. Someone said the other day that I had forgiven Thomas Jefferson. I'm not, that's a little melodramatic in my, <laughs> dramatic in my mind. But mm-hmm. I think I do have a more of an understanding about what it means to grow older and what you can accomplish in the given lifespan that we have. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm struck by, um, I talked to the historian biographer, Scott Berg, about Wilson, and we were talking about changing the names of buildings at Princeton. And he was talking about presentism. You know, is it fair to look back at people like Jefferson, like a Wilson, and ask of them to be in tune with our present day thoughts, um, moral stances, etc. And I'm wondering if that's also part of this. Well, you know, I think that's a tricky business because I think history is a moral enterprise. Mm-hmm. We don't just look back at what people did and say, ah, you know, they slaughtered the innocents and that's what they used to do then. Right. I mean, we we make judgments about it. We have to make judgments about it. Now, what you do with those judgments, how you work that out is another matter. But I think for something like the institution of slavery, where Jefferson himself understood that it was wrong, and I believe he knew it was wrong, mm-hmm. even though he continued to do it. We don't always follow through on the on our own intellectual beliefs mm-hmm. uh, for very many reasons. But I do think we can... Every generation of people can decide what people they want to honor. I mean, one of the interesting things that Jefferson said on a letter to James Madison in 1789, the earth belongs to the living. That's a paraphrase, but the earth belongs in usufruct, he used through a legal term in there, Mm. to the living. And the point was that every generation has to decide Mm -hmm. what his values are and make that pronouncement, and it would be to his detriment. But if there are people who decide... I don't think that Woodrow Wilson is a suitable person for a dorm that you're going to have black students living in, or Jefferson. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a decision for them to make. Mm -hmm. I would make a different choice about Mm -hmm. Jefferson than I would Wilson, because Jefferson Mm -hmm. is too integral to the formation of the country. And there's a danger that we will lose, give a distorted picture of things if we don't recognize that. It's a little bit much to say we can take the Declaration, we Mm -hmm. can take those things, the Library of Congress, all of the things that he contributed to, but we are going to pretend that he wasn't here, (laughs) that we're not going to honor that. And so I, I think it's possible 
to recognize the contributions, but be upfront about the flaws, about the problems that exist with it, and use it as Mm. a teaching opportunity uh, to have a discussion, a discussion about the realities Mm. of the founding of the country that was good and bad, and you want those two things together. Do you find that that conversation, I keep being so frustrated that that conversation doesn't take place, and you are one of the few people that is wading into this with a sense of nuance, and every time the conversation comes up about the founding, it's either we mythologize them or we want to wholesale, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of cancel them, as it were. (laughs) So... Is it frustrating for you in any sense to be a person of uh, aging, aging wisdom and nuance as this conversation goes on around us? Well, it's frustrating, but it's understandable because I'm not dismissing the, the real concerns that people have. And I mm-hmm. have to be honest with myself and think about you know, my position here. This is my subject and I've chosen to write about him and Monticello and slavery to see the American founding mm-hmm. largely through his life. Mm-hmm. And so maybe I have to have enough humility to understand that maybe I'm wrong. I mean, you know, maybe my approach is not the best, but it's the best that I know how to do. I, I do think that there's something to the idea of keeping the focus on both things, both, you know, the parts that are good and the parts that are bad, because Mm -hmm. you really do get a sense of, to me, it gives a sense of the nation itself. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a more realistic picture of the nation when you have both of those things together. So Jefferson is God, Jefferson is the devil. Those things are not useful to me, even though I do understand the impulse that people have to want to like him, you know, to want to uh, be to admiring of this Renaissance mm-hmm. person. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, to revile him because he held people as enslaved people when he knew and he wrote some of the most trenchant arguments against slavery that have been created. So I get the impulse. But, mm-hmm. you know, I really do want to sort of have people think about both sides of this, because I do think that this is the American condition to have this dilemma of a declaration, Mm -hmm. all men are created Mm -hmm. equal, a country founded on that principle, and at the same time, a country that sanctioned slavery. Right. What do your students think of this? The students you have now, I'm so fascinated Mm -hmm. because you're in a classroom. I know it's law, but this is your subject. And young people now, what is their reaction to Jefferson to the sense that you're putting forth of a complicated man, the good, the bad, the country, the good and bad. It seems that we are so wedded to the notion of one narrative in a life. Um, Are your students receptive to the idea of the more complex human and the more complex uh, founders? Well, I think they are. I teach in the history department and the law school, mm-hmm. and very often I have law students and history students together, mm-hmm. and history students alone. I think a number of them are, mm-hmm. and it could be self-selection. Mm-hmm. You know, these are yeah. these are people who've chosen to take my class, and they understand. In the main, probably a number of them understand what my position is, but I have found students willing to have these discussions. Mm -hmm. I do think that Jefferson's star has fallen Mm -hmm. comparatively, uh, particularly with the advent of of Hamilton, which is sort of a strange thing because the image of Hamilton— 
that's created in the play is more attractive than the actual Hamilton. I mean, I would think that they probably he's the he's the scrappy immigrant underdog. Right. And in real life, he was the scrappy immigrant underdog, but he was also a champion of the super one percent. Right. And so he was an elitist and all of that. But that doesn't come through in the play as much, but he's an enormously appealing figure there. So I think Mm -hmm. Jefferson, in some ways, culturally has uh, suffered because of that as well. Mm hmm. Very interesting. I noticed that you were not for taking down the Jefferson statue in the New York City Council for very interesting. Your objection was very interesting. Can you tell me what that objection was? Well, you know, I thought that he was a part of New York. I mean, he mm-hmm. he was the secretary of state here. He lived here. And it was crucial to his election. There was a historical component to him being there. What I really wanted, I'm on the board of the New York Historical Society, and I really welcomed the idea of having him there because we could do an exhibit and we'll likely do some sort of exhibit that Mm -hmm. talks about him as a secretary of state, his connections to New York, but also the question of slavery and the question of race as a matter, which is part of it. It's a big part of it as well, because Jefferson actually wrote about race in ways that other founders did not, even other founders who held enslaved people. So there's a lot there to work with. And Mm -hmm. I thought that that would be an opportunity to work with it, to do that. Something along the lines of the wonderful exhibit that the New York Historical Society did about slavery overall, Mm -hmm. to have a smaller version of that so that we could have this discussion. <laughs> we could have it out in a way to talk about right. you know, the complexity of this. Right, right. Well, I want to turn now to On Juneteenth, which it's just an amazing book because it sneaks up on you. You're reading a memoir and you're reading history. Where was the way in for you? It braids your story and Texas and race in the most amazingly sort of simple, and I mean that as a total compliment way, I'm following along and suddenly I'm in a classroom with you. And then I'm talking about the mythology of cowboys in Texas, and it all holds together in a magical way. So I was wondering, what was your starting point? Did you say, I'm going to write a memoir, or I'm going to write about Texas? Or how did it come about? Well, the starting point was my editor, Bob Weil, has been after me for a number of years to write a book about Texas. Okay. And we thought that it would be a big book about Texas. It still may be a big book about Texas mm-hmm. someday, but we thought it was going to be that. And a couple of year, a year ago, actually, it's not this is all running together. But I did a piece for the New Yorker about the holiday on Juneteenth, mm-hmm. and some months before that, I had done a review of five books for the New York Review of Books about Texas. So Texas mm-hmm. was on my mind, mm-hmm. and we were in the pandemic, and. We were thinking about, well, I was thinking about what I could do during this time period as we were holed up um, at at home, Mm -hmm. uh, not able to go anywhere. And I decided that I would write this book. I was thinking about my parents, Mm -hmm. you know, my parents who are no longer living. And I was wondering how they would have dealt with this weird situation where the entire world is being held hostage by this virus. And I missed them, and I wanted to try to make the connection. And so writing about them was a way to do that. So it started out as a book about Texas. I wanted to write about Texas, but I also wanted to write about my family. 
And I thought that this short memoir would be the best way to do that, to blend, as you said, the history of right. Texas, to sort of tell it through my family's story. And that's right. what the that's what the book does. Tell me about your parents. I loved the portrait of them. Strong-minded, blacks in Texas, raising you, raising a family. It was a very compelling portrait of a very strong family ethic. Well, you know, I've always thought that my parents were essentially me, uh, or I'm essentially my parents, (laughs) with more opportunities than they had. Mm-hmm. I mean, they made the most of the opportunities that were available to them. You know, my mother went to college and then graduate school. I mean, they got a master. She stopped before she went on because she had kids. And my father had a series of small business. He wasn't the greatest businessman. He was a little soft-hearted for that. But they did the best that they could under those circumstances. But they mm-hmm. didn't get a chance to... It would have been harder for them to go off to law school or to go into Dartmouth or go, you know, to Harvard or things like that. And so, sure. you know, I wondered what it would be like to me. I've always felt sympathy for them because they grew up in the Jim Crow South and their lives were circumscribed by the laws and the customs and the mores of that particular place. Mm-hmm. And so that has always sort of guided me in my understanding of the kinds of things I wanted to do is mm-hmm. to do the things that they couldn't have done, right? Mm-hmm. And to sort of fulfill the promise that could not be realized uh, for them uh, during their time period because they stayed in the South, which is an interesting question for me. I never really talked to them about that and talked mm-hmm. to the, my grandparents about this. And I've wondered about that, why some people stayed and some people left. Mm-hmm. And they remained. I don't know whether it's because they didn't want to leave land They had land Mm -hmm. that they didn't want to leave or family connections. But it's an interesting split in a way between the people who joined the Great Migration and others who remained at home. Right. So I've always thought of myself as doing the things that they couldn't do. Mm -hmm. That's who you are. Talk to me a little bit about the fact that they sent you to the all-white elementary school as a young black Texan child. And Mm -hmm. in you went. And I love the description that there was not a lot of to do. There were no policemen (laughs) walking you to the door. Your father took you by the hand and there you went. Yep, yep. Well, this too was a part of their effort, I think, to try to change the South, change the Texas that they had grown up in. Mm -hmm. They were, this is 64, the schools are still resisting Brown versus Board of Education. Right. And with something called a freedom of choice plan where white parents were going to pick white schools and black parents would pick black schools. And my parents decided to do something different with me. My two older brothers remained at the black school where my mother taught, Mm -hmm. Booker T. Washington. Mm -hmm. But I went to Anderson Elementary School. And you're right. I mean, they talked to the newspaper and the school district and everybody decided that they wouldn't make a big deal about it. Mm-hmm. that I would just go. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened, you know. And I went there, and my teachers, my teacher, Miss Daughtry, my first grade teacher, <laughs> was wonderful. And she couldn't have been better. And I, I wish I had said this in the book, because I hadn't thought of it until the end. But I wonder, until after the book was published, if the fact that my mother was a school teacher influenced Mrs. Daughtry and Mm -hmm. the other teachers. They were so protective. I don't know if that 
could have been, a, they were great people, basically mm-hmm. great human beings. But mm-hmm. I wonder if the sort of teacher camaraderie may have been a part of it as well, and that they really protected me and treated me as just one of the other students. You know, it wasn't, you know, there was no muss, no fuss, anything like that. Just very, very supportive. And it was, in some ways, a tough time because there were kids who were not nice. Right. Sometimes because on the basis of race, none of the adults, not from the teachers to the janitors, Mm -hmm. no people were unkind to me, but some Mm -hmm. of the children were. And some of them were nice, too. So I got a sense of good and bad from my uh, classmates and the people, the kids who were in schools with me. So I knew that not all white people were the same. But there was a sense of wariness there because some of them were unkind. Mm -hmm. You talked about the fact that kids that were nice to you in school, when you'd see them out on the street with their parents, there often was a different attitude or a different behavior. Oh, yes, yes. Because they understood that being friends with me was not a great thing, you know, on, yeah. would not be seen as a great thing in the eyes of their parents and their right. their uh, siblings and so forth. And so it, it just really showed me very early on how, because I really do believe that these people actually liked me as friends, you know, right. <laughs> and school. But you're, what you're doing, what was happening is that they felt that they were making a choice between me and their parents and their families, and you know what choice they're going to make. And the rational thing in a situation where you're being pressured by everybody whom you love and depend upon is to go with them. And it's a lot, again, back to ask people to give up, to alienate, Mm -hmm. especially children. You know, I'm not talking about adults who have more resources and so forth, but I understood that this was pressure on the part of their family to Mm -hmm. be a certain way. And being friends with me was not in the picture. Mm -hmm. Um, Were you ever tempted to stay in Texas? Uh, I thought I might come back to Texas Mm -hmm. after I went off to college. I went off to Dartmouth at 18, and then I went to to law school. Mm -hmm. But I met my husband in law school, and he's a Californian. Uh (laughs) And they are, in some ways, as chauvinistic about their state as Texans are. Speaking as a Californian... Uh, I can second that. That is true. I'm incredibly proud and stubborn about my California identity. Yes, yes. So, you know, he would not go to Texas. I would go to California, but he would not go to Texas. But we ended up in New York. We were supposed to be in New York for two years, you know, two or three years before I got out of my system. Right. And, you know, that's been, it was in 1984, you know. So here we are still in New York. So I would go back to Texas. I love Houston. Mm-hmm. I actually like Houston. I mean, I know it can be a swamp in the summertime, mm-hmm. but I like the state. I could live there. Mm-hmm. And I thought about going back, but I, as I said, I got married. You know, one of the things I loved again in the book is at some point you said, and I have it here, I don't feel hostage to others' conceptions of what Texas should mean to me. Being a black person and a Texan then are not in opposition. And That so resonates with what I have come to know of you on the page and just in person is that you're willing to hold, again, things that look as if they're oppositional, but you refuse to let them be oppositional, such as you being a Texan and a black person and having uh, feelings for your home state and the place Mm -hmm. where you were raised and your family was raised. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't 
makes sense to me, for me personally, to let the hostility of people who live in Texas, who say this is a white person's country, this is a white person's state or whatever, Mm -hmm. define Mm -hmm. what Texas is for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. My family was born there, my great-grandparents, my great-great-grandparents. I can go back to the 1820s in in Texas. And why should their judgment determine all of this? I mean, and there are a number of white Texans who don't feel that way. So Mm -hmm. in concert with them, and others who believe in the equal humanity of other people, mm-hmm. I can claim this state and this place where my family has been for ages as my own. Mm-hmm. They don't get to decide that. So it would be easy to just say, well, whoever is the most hostile and the most racist person in Texas gets to say who you are. Correct. No, we can have to keep fighting mm-hmm. you know, to claim the place where we lived and buried our families and had our children and had good moments and bad. Mm -hmm. You know, I was struck back to just pivoting a little bit back to the Jefferson thing. When Roger Wilkins was at the conference and he gave a wonderful talk, and he was talking about the same, but he was talking about on a national scale, the juggling act, as it were, non-oppositional, though, of being both black and being a patriot. Mm-hmm. And holding those two things and not letting anyone take one or the other from you. Mm-hmm. Roger was, I would like him very much, and I agree with him. And it, it holds not only just for Texas, obviously, it's a story for the country as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm interested in, in something that we started with, the whole idea of what is the responsibility and role of the historian. Because honestly, if you were raised in this country when I was, which is, I am older than you, that will be happy news. Um, And the history books were all mythologizing the founders and the myth of America and the, you know, city on the hill and whatnot. And I'm always curious now about how much more attention I bring to bear on books about history and see that the person is trying to tell a real whole story and put a face on people. And so that the narrative is not prescribed, as it were, and I'm not to succumb to it. But when you are a historian writing, do you still find when you read other histories that you see things that are more biased, less fair-minded, less equitable, less trying to juggle the nuances that you're talking about? Oh, yes. Yes, and I'm sure it's possible and very likely when people read my work, they're saying, oh, she's just not really attuned to the real gravity of the situation here, that you Mm -hmm. have to make Mm -hmm. these choices, you have to write in this particular way. I think a lot of it is, it's a question of personality, Mm -hmm. you know, when when it comes down to it, is the kinds of, the way you respond to these particular issues. Yes, but I do see... In writing about Jefferson, in writing about Sally Hemings, I feel, wait a minute, you're not considering this. You're not considering you know, her circumstances. You're not considering that in some ways this particular family was different than other mm-hmm. enslaved people at Monticello. doesn't mean that they were not enslaved, but mm-hmm. there were things that happened to them that didn't happen to other people. There were things, there were mm-hmm. opportunities that they had and ways of taking advantage of them that other people didn't have. And you really have to recognize Mm -hmm. that, not just for their sake, but for the sake of other enslaved people who didn't have 
some of the chances that the members of the Hemings family did have. When you look out now, and there's been all this to do, let's say, about the 1619 Project and pro and con, and it became a real battlefield again, what does that say to you? What does that fill you with? What do you think of that? Well, I think in some ways, well, the controversy is good in the sense that it means that people are paying attention. And we should be having mm-hmm. these conversations. Uh, we should have a discussion about the meaning of slavery during the founding era. You know, 1619 is important. 1607, when the first English settlers really get here and begin to set things up, that's an important year as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm happy to have the conversation. It's better to talk about these things. Now, there are some sense that Nicole Hannah-Jones has been attacked in ways that are unacceptable, you know, death threats or things like Mm -hmm. that. That kind of conversation, we shouldn't, that's not what I mean. But real discussions Mm -hmm. about the nature of slavery and the founding and the founders' relationship to it, I think it's important. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't want to sort of hide and say that, you know, just for the sake of uh, having some sort of forced conformity or forced, you know, agreement about things. So I think it's been useful so long as it's not mm-hmm. violent, you know, in, in terms in the in the presentation. Right. And as to the school boards and school book controversy and censorship and all of that, does that worry you oh, as yes. you as you look abroad in this that, yeah. that that's the most worrisome thing and I really hope people stand up against all of that. I mean, the idea that because you don't want to read a book, it means that nobody gets a chance to read it in, in the public venue is really frightening. And I think most Americans don't agree with that, will not agree with this. And I'm hoping that there will be some pushback against this, mm-hmm. because it really does show that there is some guilt, I think, about some of the things that happened in the past. And the idea that you're going to assuage that Mm -hmm. or get rid of that by hiding it is just wrong. Young people have ways of finding out lots of things, and I don't think they're going to appreciate the fact that people tried to hide things from them. Their parents and others tried to hide things from them, because that never works. No, certainly not with all everything that's out and about now. When you look out across this complicated, tumultuous land with all its divisions— What gives you hope today? Well, that so many young people are involved in politics. So many young people are interested in these subject subject matters. Mm -hmm. There's new activism. And my students here at the law school, so many of them are interested in changing society and working to using the law to do that. Mm -hmm. And my daughter's generation, she had a friend who ran for office, an, an older person, but still young, who ran for office and won in New York State. So I'm really buoyed by their sense of commitment to things. And the young people, it's a cliche because it's true. I mean, they're the future. And the ones that I meet are really enthusiastic about it. And I think they have this required to really make change. And they're open people. They care. They're very sensitive in lots of ways. Some people say they're too sensitive. I don't I don't agree with that. I just think that they are empathetic in ways that maybe mm-hmm. previous generations were not. So when I look at young people, I feel very, very optimistic. 
I think that's a wonderful place to end. And I share that. And down the road, I will lure you back to the Sun Valley Writers Conference with any luck. Oh, that was one of my favorite things. (laughs) It was great. Thank you so much. This has just been a terrific conversation. I loved hearing you talk about Texas, the country, everything that's going on, and your optimism about the young people. And I hope we get you back to Sun Valley very soon. Thank you. Thank you very much. Beyond the Page is produced by John Burnham Schwartz and James Tooley. Original music by Dean Grinsfelder and production support provided by Jay Shelliday. <laughs>